Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Well, good morning, Hope Church. Uh, Pastor Jason is away today. He's preaching at Hope uh, Church in Oakville, actually. Uh, So I have the privilege today of bringing a single sermon that I pray bridges the gap between the series that we've just been in, the church and family, and then looks ahead to the Christmas series ahead. I want to start our sermon today with just three questions. Um, Who am I? What am I here for? And where did I come from? Who am I? What am I here for? And where did I come from? Those are fundamentally questions of meaning. They're fundamental categories of identity, purpose, and story. And across all generations, every single person, whether they've asked the questions or not, they've had functional answers to these simple but profound questions. Who am I? What am I here for? And where did I come from? But here's a question. Uh, How are these questions answered today, and how would it be different from the past? In other words, where is meaning found today? Relatedly, where are we told to find our meaning? Author Carl Truman observes that we find meaning in different places compared to our grandparents. Uh, The traditional approach and traditional cultures, meaning was given by social order, by family and by tribe, and you're called to conform to that. He says, the ancient Athenian was committed to the assembly, the medieval church, Christian to his church, and the 20th century factory worker to his trade union and the working man's club. All of them found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. In other words, meaning for them in traditional cultures is found outside. Meaning found outside. In modern cultures today, meaning is given by the individual. Truman continues, he says, meaning and purpose, according to the modern man, can be created by the individual. A specifically expressive individualism says this, each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. In other words, meaning is found inside. And this change from the traditional to the modern, from meaning being derived from the outside to the inside, by the way, that's not just happening out there, it's ha- it's, it affects us as well. Here's an example, take a look at how we view job satisfaction. You know, if you went to your grandfather and you asked, hey grandpa, do you find meaning in your job? I mean, he may not understand the question, first off, initially, but when pressed, he'd probably say, you know, I'm able to put food on my family's table. I'm able to put clothes on their back. So yes, I do find great meaning in my job. See, for him, meaning is derived from the outside, family, society. Now today, if you and I were asked the same question, do you find meaning in your job? We'd probably reply, well, I do enjoy the work. And it gives me a deep sense of personal fulfillment, and I'm generally happy doing the job. And so, yes, I do find great meaning at the job. Meaning is derived not from outside, but from inside. It affects us too. But here's the question. What if? What if? What if meaning was was not supposed to be derived from outside? And it wasn't supposed to be derived from inside, but what if it's supposed to be derived from above? 
What are the answers to the questions, who am I? What am I here for? And where did I come from? That they're not gained from within, they're not gained from without, but they're gained from above. In our text today, we're just looking at two verses, but they're packed with meaning from above. And what I pray today is that we'll see that it gives us marvelously distinct meaning. Marvelously distinct meaning. It's marvelous. It, when, when it really hits you, when you stop and think about it, it hits you. It's distinct. It's unlike anything else. It's special. It's distinguished. It's marvelously distinct meaning. And that's the title of our sermon today. So would you turn with me now uh, to, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, simply raise your hand and one of our ushers would be glad to get a copy of God's word to you. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context uh, this was a letter written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter was written, writing to Christians who were dispersed across Asia Minor. Now, you, you get indications from the book that they were primarily Gentile Christians because they lived in former ignorance, 1 Peter 1.14, in the futile ways inherited from their forefathers, 1 Peter 1.18. Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians. But in the very, very first line of the book, we can observe Peter wants to convey something to his primarily Gentile Christian audience. He wants to say this, you have significant meaning from above. You have significant meaning from above. Uh, take a look at 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 1 to 5. It's one probably one page back, or it's on the screen. It's, it, the words open like this, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Dispersion? Dispersed, right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right out, of, right out the gate, from the first lines, Peter says, your lives have been endowed with great meaning from above. Peter uh, addresses the people as elect exiles. They're chosen and exiled. Uh, these are Old Testament descriptions of God's people now applied to these dispersed Gentile Christians. And then he switches. He switches to we language, and he begins to sing out. He says, we're recipients of great mercy. We're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're guarded through faith. We are a people saved through faith. We're people saved by grace, uh, and we're saved in Christ alone. And as recipients of this great mercy, we're born again. We've become heirs of an inheritance. Do you see that? Right out the gate in this little text, he says, you are a distinct people uh, and you have distinct meaning from, a, uh, from above. You see, it starts with the God of mercies. You have the God of mercies and then he's chosen and he's elected you. And then he, and after that, he caused you to be born again to a living hope. So now you're completely 
distinct. And it's those themes that he picks up in our text today. Uh, turn with me now. Let's look at our text today. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. And let's read it. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, in this text, Peter is saying, elect or chosen exiles, those of you who are born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection, according to God's great mercies, those of you who are guarded through faith, elect exiles, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you why you are. And let me tell you where you came from. Elect exiles, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you why you are. And let me tell you where you came from. It's marvelously distinct meaning. And right here in our text, just two little verses, God's word gives us answers to the three questions we started with. Who am I? What am I here for? And where did I come from? Let's look at those three answers from the text. First, uh, the first gives the answer to the question, who am I? This is our first point. You have a marvelously distinct identity. A people called into marvelous light. You have a marvelously distinct identity, a people called into marvelous light. Let's read verse 9 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The verse starts with the word, but... Peter is saying, elect exiles, in contrast to the empire and all of its persecuting crowds, in contrast to those who have rejected Jesus Christ, you are distinct, marvelously distinct. Because of the mercies of God, God has chosen and elected you and caused you to be born again. And because of that, you are something different. You have a new and marvelously distinct identity. This is who you are now. And then he loads who you are with four big descriptors. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. This is some of the densest, most beautiful descriptions of, what our, of our identity. And we're going to look at each one. The first is this, a chosen race. What does that mean? Uh, Sam Storms writes this on the screen. He says, irrespective of ethnicity, believers have been united by faith in Jesus to be a new people, a new race. This kind of race, or genos, has nothing to do with ethnicity precisely because this race is composed of every ethnicity. It is a spiritual race, a chosen race, defined not by color or culture, but by creed. This race is defined by the one in whom we believe, Jesus. That means that in this very room, while we may have different ethnic backgrounds and eat different foods, if you are in Jesus Christ by faith, we are of the same spiritual race. John Piper himself, he, he makes an insightful categorical observation. It blew me away. He says, did you know there are only two races? The firstborn, born naturally, 
and the secondborn, born again spiritually. Two races, the firstborn, born naturally, and the secondborn, born again spiritually. He says, the firstborn are of the human race, of the old Adam. And the secondborn are also of the human race, but they're also born of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that that's how God describes and defines racial identity? You, brothers and sisters, born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race. It means the color of my skin and my ethnicity is not my essential identity. I'm fundamentally part of a new and chosen race. Don't get me wrong. I'm still going to ask my wife to cook uh, my wife to cook rice for dinner for me on most days because this man cannot live on potatoes alone. Love it. But you know, while my ethnicity may contribute to my diet, it should never ground my essential identity. We are a chosen race. We're of the same people. We're of the same tribe, united by faith. That means for me, I want to start more sentences with, as a sinner saved by grace, this da 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 da, then as a Chinese man da 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 da. Does that make sense? We have a fundamental identity. And now take note, it says we're a chosen race, not choice race. Chosen, not choice. You see, the word choice means great quality, superior, first rate, premier. If I said, hey, I went apple picking and I picked some choice apples. That means I picked some superior, first-rate, premier apples. But here's the thing. We're a chosen people, not a choice people. We're not choice people. We're not of high quality, superior, and first-rate. God didn't choose us because of our merit or anything lovely in us. He chose us simply because of his great mercy. In fact, in this very, very verse, Peter is calling back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where he takes what God said to Israel, and he applies it to the whole church. Look at the screen, Deuteronomy 7, and just take note of all of the similarities that you see in this text. Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God set his love on his chosen people? Not because they're great, but because he loves them. It's stunning. Look at this verse again. He says, it is because the Lord loves you that he set his love on you. Just pause and think, why does he set his love on you? It is because he loves you. It is because God loves you that he set his love on you. God loved you because he loved you and he's a promise keeper. It's not because you're choice. It's not because you're premier. It's he, cho- he chooses us because he is premier. We're a chosen people, not a choice people. And the implications of our chosenness is this. We can't boast. Here's Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 paraphrase. God chose the low, the foolish, the ignoble, like you and me, so that no human being might boast. I, we were chosen 
He caused us to be born again. We didn't get in because of our pedigree and our credentials. We were simply chosen because of his great mercies. We were not loved because we were lovely. We were loved because God was loving. That is our God. But don't you see, when you know that, it gives you unshakable identity. If your identity is rooted in his choosing, not your choiceness, your identity is unshakable. John Piper puts it this. He says, what gives us our identity is not color or culture, but chosenness. If you're united to Christ by faith, you are chosen. A chosen race. A chosen race. But that's not all. He says, we're a royal priesthood. See that, that next little phrase, royal priesthood. This compound phrase, it brings a richness to our identity in Christ. We are royal priests. Brothers and sisters, did you know that you're royal priests? That, that all Christians are royal priests. You could have looked in the mirror this morning and said, you're a royal priest. Uh, it's a marvelously distinct identity. It's, it's a marvelously distinct combination, royal and priest. Uh, D.H. Wheaton on the screen, he says, Throughout the Old Testament, kings and priests were separate individuals. Only Melchizedek and the Messiah combined both offices. Saul sinned when he tried to discharge both functions. In Christ, the Christian can be both. Amazing. You're given a category that wasn't even there in the Old Testament. Royal priests. A new compound identity. Now, you may sit there and think, okay, well, that's pretty grand, but what does that actually entail for my life? Can you tell me about royal priests? What do, you, what do royal priests do? Well, two things we learn about royal priests. The first is this, um, royal priests offer sacrifices. See, one of the Old Testament, uh, one of the essential functions of the Old Testament sacrifice uh, priest was to sacrifice for the people. And these sacrifices will, what we, uh, are, are what we call appeasing sacrifices. They appeased. They were sacrifices that appeased and propitiated the holy wrath of God against people's sin. This sacrifice must die in this sinner's place so that they can appease, fully absorb the wrath of God. But on this side of the cross, because Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice, appeasing sacrifices, they're not needed anymore. He was the ultimate and final appeasing sacrifice. So now we priests can spend our days offering pleasing sacrifices. Pleasing sacrifices, not appeasing sacrifices. Sacrifices that are spiritual, not physical. Where, in fact, where we get that, take a look. At, just go up in, in your text to verse, 1 Peter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But what does that look like? Well, two texts I want to bring from the outside to help us understand because I didn't wake up this week thinking, oh, I'm a holy priest. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do now. Uh, Romans 12 verse 1 to 2 tells us this. We offer sacrifices of holy living. First, we offer sacrifices of holy living. Romans 12 on the screen says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. How, what spiritual sacrifices do, do royal priests offer? Sacrifices of holy living. Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. 
We also offer sacrifices of praise and generosity. Praise and generosity. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I just want to stop there. That is so good. Today, when we sang, you were doing a priestly duty. <laughs> you were royal priest offering up a sacrifice of praise from the fruit of your lips. You weren't just coming and singing along. You were coming with spiritual robes on as royal priests. He says, he continues, he says, don't neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Praise and generosity. But it's amazing. We don't often think in those terms. When we, when we walk in, or I, I know for me, when I walk in Sunday to Sunday, I don't think, hey, I'm walking in to do my priestly duty, to offer sacrifices of praise from the fruit of my lips. I don't, I don't think to myself, of course I'm coming to church to worship. That's a given. I'm a priest who offers sacrifices. You know, if I went to my dentist and asked, hey, do you floss? I'm pretty sure his reaction would be, of course I floss. I'm a dentist. That should be a given. Of course I do. But I don't think we have the same mindset when it comes to us being sacrifice offering priests. We don't think, of course I'm going to church today to sing praises loud. That's a given. I'm a royal priest. We don't think, of course I'm going to do good and share generously today. That's a given. I'm a royal priest. We don't think, of course, I'll offer God a transformed and holy life. I'll say no to this thing, though it looks fun, but it won't be. It's not holy. That's a given. I'm a royal priest. See, we forget who we are, and therefore we forget what should be obvious to us. John Piper says this. He says, you're called now to minister in the presence of God. All your life is priestly service. You're never out of God's presence. You are never in a neutral zone. You're always in the court of the temple. And your life is either spiritual service of worship or it is out of character. Lord, may we not live out of character. Our lives, I believe, would be completely different, completely changed if we walked and thought, even my very coming to church to sing is me as a royal priest offering a sacrifice. And of course, I'll do it. I'm a royal priest. Here's the second thing we learn, we learn about uh, royal priests. They're royal. I know that may be obvious. Uh, they're royal. Uh, Piper again says, we're born into a kingly family. We have kingly blood into us, uh, in us. We're born into the family of the king. It gives us a new dignity. I recently read this story uh, about a woman named Sarah. In the 70s, she was adopted uh, by a family in Maryland. Uh, as she rose up, uh, at age 28, she hired a private investigator to find her biological father. So she knew she was of African descent, but that was all she knew. Eventually, this private investigator located her uncle, and her uncle gave her a phone call. And her uncle says on the phone, Oh, Sarah, we are so happy you've been found. Do you know who you are? And Sarah on the other line just said, confused. And she said, Well, I'm Sarah. And on the other line, her uncle says, you don't understand. You are part of a royal family. Your great-grandfather was a paramount chief. 
Your grandfather was knighted justice of the peace by the Queen of England. You can be chief someday. You're a princess in this country. At that call, she found out that she was princess of the Mende tribe of Bumpe Sierra Leone. At the age of 28, finding out, oh my goodness, I'm a princess. I have royal blood. She ended up connecting with her birth father. She tra traveled to Bumpe. She's been doing work in this tribe for the last 18 years. And she said, my life is completely changed. You see, when you find out your royalty, just imagine getting that phone call. When you find out your royalty, even human royalty, it changes your outlook. It changes your life. It's unavoidable. Now, if that's the case for human royalty, how about cosmic royalty? Do you know what our text is doing today? Our text is that phone call. It's that phone call that says, hey, do you know who you are? And our first response is to answer, I'm Andrew, or I'm Eric, or I'm Sandro, or I'm Sebastian, or I'm Onigo. And we want to just say, isn't that who I am? But this text is the voice on the other line of the phone saying, you are part of a royal family. Your father is the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, and the king of kings. Don't you think that would change your outlook if you remember that every day? As you encounter your struggles in your day-to-day -day life, when you stop and you think, wait, I'm part of a royal family. Absolutely changes you. Remember who you are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Finally, you're a holy nation and a people of his own possession. Holy nation, holy. It means that we reflect God's character. It means we're set apart. Uh, it means you're set apart for the sanctification of the spirit. It means you're distinct and different from the world. It gets at the purity of your identity. A holy nation. But not just that, a people for his own possession. I, this phrase is amazing. It's a phrase that's laden with imagery. D.H. Wheaton, again, he says this, a people for his own possession, in other words, spiritual, uses the imagery of the eastern king who kept a special treasure chamber apart from his royal treasury. That's amazing. Stop. In this little phrase, he's making reference to these eastern kings. They would have their royal treasury, but then they'd have this special chamber separate from the royal treasury, that they would keep their most prized and special possessions. And that's the image that is used to describe you and me, a people for his own possession. He owns everything, but he's got a special chamber for his people, and you're in there. A people for his own possession. And so read it slow and read it deliberately. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If we let those words sink in, we realize these are echoes of the identity God first gave to the people of Israel in Exodus 19. Look at Exodus 19. It's on the screen. And just note the similarities. They are so stark. He said, this is uh, right before they're given the, the Ten Commandments. He says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And now 
Peter speaks them to the people of God today, the New Testament church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And I think there's really two appropriate responses to that. The first is, wow, just wow. We should just be in awe at our marvelous identity. But the second appropriate response is, how? How is this possible? How could this be true of us, especially us wicked Gentiles? And this brings us to the last half of verse 9. Peter answers this question, the how question, with a grand truth. Here's how. Yeah, how, it, how, is it, how is it that you're a holy nation? How is it that you're a chosen race? How is it that you're people of their own possession? If you're so wicked, if you're, uh, if you're wicked Gentiles, this is how. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the end, this little verse is the ultimate summary of how we have been made chosen, special, and royal. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are people called out of darkness and called into a marvelous light. Darkness to light. That's the transfer that has taken place. And it is a beautiful theme in God's word. Darkness to light. Darkness to light. And Can I I just give you a little montage of this beautiful theme throughout the Bible? You know, it's Christmas season. It would be remiss to just gloss over this, this theme of darkness to light. So we're just going to give a little bit of a montage, walk through the Bible. And Victoria, ready to go? We're going to get lots of scripture, but I pray it will feed you and nourish you. First, darkness is such a stark metaphor for sin. Here's how Isaiah describes darkness of sin. sin. He describes it as deep and thick darkness. Isaiah 8, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the state that we're in in our sin. Thick darkness, gloom of anguish, distress and darkness. You look to the earth, you can't find anything. But it's against this backdrop of thick, deep darkness that Jesus, the light, has come in. You keep reading in Isaiah, and it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. I don't know if you, if you did, but I've got lights in the house now, Christmas lights. That's what, that's supposed to reflect. A great light has come in. And Jesus, again, he say, that's what he says in John 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That was Isaiah 9 before 2000. In Isaiah 9 saying, a great light will one, come, will one day come. And Jesus comes. He is the light of the world. And now 2,000 years later, after Jesus, when wandering, gloomy, darkness entrapped sinners encounter Jesus Christ, the light of the world, God turns on the lights and shines light into our hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know that this happened? 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, did you know that God who said, let there be light, in Genesis 1 said, let there be light, and boom, there is light in your heart. 
And that's how it happens. He creates light in you. This is God calling out of darkness, just like our text says. He calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He speaks into the darkness, and instantly, boom, there is light. It's just like Jesus standing at the deathly dark tomb of Lazarus when he says, Lazarus, come out. And the call creates life. It brings Lazarus out into the marvelous light. We are a people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. And all of that, did you know, we're not then just basking in light. You have new citizenship that we've been transferred into his kingdom. The next text here is Colossians 1. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have a new citizenship. You have a new king. You're not in the kingdom of darkness. You have a new passport. It's the passport that belongs to the kingdom of light. So now you have a new identity. You are light. You are children of light. Ephesians 5 says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Do you hear your God? This is the, this is the grand theme that, that grounds the season that we're going into, the Christmas season. We're in deep, thick darkness, but he promised a light would come, and Jesus comes, and now 2,000 years later, we hear the call, or for some of us that happened in the past, and boom, he switches the lights on, and now we have new citizenship, and we are light, and we're children of light. That's what it means. You have a marvelously distinct identity. Your people called into marvelous light. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Peter could have, it is absolutely stunning. If, if we could just hang ourselves on, one, on this one thing, we are the ones called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It would completely change us. Now at this point, Peter perhaps could have stopped at describing our identity, but he doesn't. Because God doesn't just give you marvelously distinct identity so that you can have the warm fuzzies. Your identity, it turns out, has purpose to it. And our next point, it answers the question, what am I here for? Why am I for? Our second point is this. You have a marvelously distinct purpose. Proclaim God's excellencies. Why did God call us into marvelous light? Why were we given a new identity? Why were we chosen to be a distinct race, a nation, and a royal priesthood? Why? Why? Here, here, here's what it says in the text. Look at your text. That you may proclaim. God's choosing of you was not purposeless. It has divine purpose. That you would proclaim. That's the reason for your existence. That's your why. The answer to the question, what am I here for? And I pray, if anyone asks you on the street when you leave, hey, what's the reason for your existence? I pray your answer is to proclaim. We're created to proclaim. Did you know that you exist to be a proclaimer? And did you know that you exist specifically to be a proclaimer of God's excellencies? The excellencies refers to God's moral virtues, his inherent beauty, his radiance, his magnificence. Moreover, this verse frames his excellency in terms of his marvelous light. He's the excellent one who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And therein lies your marvelously distinct purpose. You are called, you exist to proclaim excellencies of our saving God. 
to proclaim magnificent things about our saving God, marvelous things about our saving God, to proclaim beautiful things about our saving God. Because indeed, as the author of Hebrews says, how can we possibly neglect so great a salvation? You were plucked from darkness into marvelous light, and that leads to marvelous proclamation. Now, you may retort and you, you may say, you know what? Surely there's more to Christian purpose than that. Surely that's too simplistic. Nope. This is the one singular purpose that can be lived out in a hundred different ways. You can proclaim God's excellencies to himself, uh, saying, God, aren't you so marvelous and wonderful? That's the essence of singing and prayer. You can proclaim God's excellencies to other Christians. Say, brother or sister, look at God. Isn't he so marvelous and wonderful? That's the essence of discipling and building one another up. You can proclaim God's excellencies to an unsaved world and an unbelieving world, saying, unbelieving world, would you take a moment to consider Jesus because he's an absolute marvel. He's the most beautiful thing I've ever laid my eyes on. That's the essence of evangelism and mission and compassion. Different audiences, but one singular purpose, proclaim God's excellencies. Saying to the world, would you behold God and his marvelous salvation? Isn't he stunning? Isn't our rescue marvelous? Here's a heart check question. Do you live a proclaiming life? A proclaiming life that proclaims the excellencies of God. Here's a, here's a litmus test. When you have your conversations with, with other people, and they may be very deeply spiritual conversations, but here's a good check. Do people walk away from that conversation and think, man, that person was really enthralled by the greatness and other beauty of God? Are they walking away thinking, wow, that person was proclaiming the excellencies of God? If not, you may need to ask yourself, what am I proclaiming instead? My excellencies? My rightness? My knowledge? <laughs> Proclaim the excellencies of God. Dear brothers, rediscover your pur purpose. Dear brothers and sisters, rediscover your purpose. Proclaim God's excellencies. That's why you're here for. That is your why. Proclaim his excellencies. You have a marvelously distinct identity. You have a marvelously distinct purpose. Finally, here's our final point. You have a marvelously distinct story. Marvelously distinct story. Once not, but now. Let's look at verse 10 again. It says this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the structure in this verse? Once not, but now. Once not, but now. Once not a people, but now God's people. Once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's using this rep repetition, he's repeating it to drive home the point. He's, he's basically saying, you know all this stuff about you being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Let me give you a reminder, that wasn't always the case. Because once you weren't those things, but now you are. See, what Peter's trying to emphasize is that this distinct identity that you have, this distinct purpose that you have, it didn't just appear out of thin air. That it's got backstory to it. It's got history to it, and there's a story behind it. In fact, this is what he's saying. This is your story. And your story fundamentally is a story of once not, but now. We're members of the household now, but we used to be strangers. We're citizens of God's people now, but we used to be foreigners. We are heirs of the king now, but we were once sons of disobedience. We're pitied now, but we were once not pitied. That's your origin story. 
That's the answer to where did I come from? You came from Adam, born in sin, but God, by his great mercies, caused you to be born again in Jesus Christ. And I know it seems like you may hear that and think, yeah, I know that as an obvious fact, but I want you to hear that as not just that, that's not just an obvious fact, that's your backstory. Because without that backstory, without that origin story, we can't make sense of how we've come to be. There's this renewed interest in people exploring their backstories, whether through hiring a private investigator like the earlier story of Sarah, or whether through 23andMe ancestry tests, or people traveling their, to their homelands. Now, for some, they're just curious. They just want information. Ah, it's neat. I'll do this test, and I'll find out, you know, where I came from. But for others, I think there's a deeper search going on. It's a search for significance. It's a desire to make sense of how you've come to be. And the thought can go like this. If I visit my homeland, learn more about my roots and the traditions of my great grandparents and trace the family tree to how I got here, maybe I'll discover my own story in the midst of a larger story. It's a popular thought. But hear this from the Apostle Paul. He says, sorry, the Apostle Peter, there is a far more fundamental foundational story that can be the bedrock of your life, and it is this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Once you're not a people, but now you are. That that is fundamentally your origin story. That is your story in the midst of a bigger story. And if you understand that, it'll help you, it'll truly help you make sense of how you've come to be. That I could, I could connect with my roots and find out what province my, uh, my ancestors came from and what all of their uh, cultural practices were and try to get in touch with my backstory so I can make sense of who I am. And look, those things can be helpful and informative. But in the end, that's not my foundational story. My foundational story is I was once not a people, but now I am. Once not received mercy, now I have. And because of that, you can sing. This is your story. And because of that, you can sing. This is your story, and so this is your song. We're going to close uh, with a beautiful, beautiful hymn that we haven't done in a while. It's a hymn from Fanny Crosby called Blessed Assurance. And I just wanted to read the lyrics for us as we ponder and consider. Because as I'm writing this and thinking about this, I'm thinking, this is true meaning. It's our identity, our purpose, our story. This is our story, and this is our song. The song goes, it starts, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. You're an heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's pray. God, I readily confess that I forget the meaning that you've given us. I forget that we're a royal priesthood called to offer up sacrifices of praise. God, I forget that we're a chosen race, a new people constituted by you. Lord, I forget that we're your treasured possession. 
kept for us because of your spirit born again, that we're heirs of salvation. Lord, I forget, I forget, I forget. And Lord, we forget, but Lord, help us to remember, help us to recover what we're made to be and what we're made to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, I don't, I don't meditate on that enough, but Lord, we pray we meditate on it that we would shout at the rooftop, yes, this is our story. We were once not a people, but now we are. We were once not pitied, not receiving mercy, but now we have, and that changes everything, that it goes deeper than my ethnic roots. It goes deeper than my individual stories and my individual identity markers, that you give true identity, purpose, and story. And so, Lord, I pray, would you cause us to rise again now even to offer you spiritual sacrifices as royal priests to lift up our voices and sing out, this is our story and this is our song because it is. We thank you for the story and song you've given us in your most precious name. Amen. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.